Good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, head on out the back. And as they're going, let me, uh, um, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, we're grateful that the promise engages and the Lord does provide. Lord, that's what we're counting on. That's where our hope is, is on your promise. And so would you be with us now as you've promised to make your word available to your people? that the hidden things belong to God, but the things that you've revealed, you've revealed to us and to our children. So Lord, we're counting on this promise now. Uh, come and be with us, we ask, as we look to this text and show us what it is that you have to say. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. So remember where we left Paul last week. It's, it's kind of hard because we're breaking this story up. It's coming in chunks. But uh, where we left Paul last week is he had been taken to the council and they were gonna figure out what he had done what was the accusation? And if you remember last week, Paul landed really quick on the resurrection. Um, I, what happened was he perceived that the room was mixed, people who believe in the resurrection, people who don't. And so he announces the resurrection really quick. And I said last week, he didn't do that in order to start a riot. I think he did it because he saw he wasn't going to get a fair hearing. So let me say it. Let me get it out here, and then we'll wrestle through it. And it wound up starting a theological argument, and, and they have to rescue him. So they hauled him back to the barracks. That's where so now we pick up the story and we're heading off to Rome. This very next morning, it, no time has elapsed. This is the very next morning. The Jews make a plot and bind themselves under an oath to kill Paul. And not only do they do that, but they go to the chief priests and the elders, the rulers of God's people, and they involve them in a conspiracy to commit perjury. We want you to lie and tell, tell the, the, uh, the tribune to bring Paul down so that you can examine him closer. But don't worry about it. He ain't going to make it here. We're going to kill him before he gets in here. And it doesn't say that they agree, but it's implied pretty strongly. They agreed. So what happens is it's fascinating. These folks have now committed to commit murder and perjury under an oath to God. And you remember how this whole thing started was Paul went to the temple to take an oath to God. And that's how this whole thing starts. So now these people are committing to God that they are going to do something that he expressively says, don't do. In the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness. And these folks are saying, we have a greater good that we have to accomplish here. So we're going to break these two rules so that we can accomplish this thing. They're going to sin in order to have something what they consider better happen. That's why they're going to kill Paul. So this is the story. This is their, their excuse to get Paul back out. Why don't they just rush into the barracks and take him out there? Why do they have to lie to draw him out? Well, because the barracks is full of Romans. <laughs> I mean, you hear what happened later in the story. The Tribune commands almost 500 troops to take Paul out. So they're around. So it doesn't make any sense to try to storm the, the, uh, the barracks and get in there and get him. But if they can draw him out, it'll be a smaller guard. And so these, these men will overpower these Roman soldiers and kill Paul and then probably run for the hills because Romans don't tend to take murder of their troops very well. Um, as a matter of fact, they take it really poorly and there's probably going to be a lot of death if this plot happens. So that's a bad start to this thing. So the council agrees and this is where they're going to go. They are not going to eat nor drink until they kill Paul. That's a pretty serious oath, isn't it? That, that would incline you to say, I need to hurry up and get this done. One of the things is this idea that I'm going to engage in military combat and I'm not going to eat or drink until I'm victorious is really stupid. 
There's an old saying attributed to Napoleon, but it's not. Uh, it wasn't really Napoleon who said it. He said, an army marches on its belly. In other words, if you can't provide for your army, if they're starving, they're not going to fight well. Um, so that's what's happening here is these guys have taken an oath to not eat or drink until they kill Paul. But what that means is if it doesn't happen in the next little bit, their, their strength is going to start weakening. It happened, as a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Saul is, you know, the big guy now. He's, he's the king. He's, he's got his robes on. He's ready to go out and kill the Philistines. And he promises, he makes everybody swear an oath. If anybody eats before we are victorious, I'm going to kill you. And so everybody swears that they're going to do that. Well, everybody except his son, Jonathan, who wasn't around. He didn't know that it was happening. So Jonathan's going through the woods after having pursued the Philistines and defeated them. And he's starving. So he sticks a spear tip into some honey and he eats some honey and it, it gives him energy. Honey's got a lot of carbohydrates. It's good for you. So he shows up and he's all like, yes, let's go get him. And everybody in the camp is about to fall over dead. It was a dumb idea. You don't starve yourself before you go into battle. So it sounds really heroic. And these guys sound very dedicated and we will do this wonderful thing. And you're really dumb for doing it that way. It's a bad idea. But it does show their commitment. I will starve to death before I let Paul get away. And so they're serious. This isn't. This is a live threat. This isn't just some, you know, um, vague. We might do something. This is something that's that's live and real. So the word gets out somehow. The word get back, gets back to Paul's sister's son, his nephew. Hears about it. That tells you a couple of things. Paul's sister's in Jerusalem with her son because the son is a young man. Um, doesn't say exactly what the age is, but you know, probably a teenager at the most. Word gets back to him somehow. Um, he hears about it. And so what he does is he runs to the barracks and he tells Paul. Now, he could do that because Paul is a Roman citizen and he is being held more in protective custody than he is under arrest. And so his family would have access to him because guess what the Romans aren't going to do? They aren't going to feed him. You know, in modern prisons, they have a big food system where we provide food for people. Back in those days, if you didn't have a friend or loved one who would bring you food, you were going to die because nobody else was going to do it unless you beat somebody else and took theirs. So the family had access to Paul. So they come in and they visit Paul, and his nephew explains to him that, um, that this plot is taking place. So Paul grabs one of the centurions um, and says, take this young man to the tribune. He has something important to tell him. So Paul has got access. He's not in some dungeon cell locked away. And again, this is that Roman citizen has given him privilege, though not liberty. So he can, he can do some things, but he can't leave the barracks. And so the, the centurion takes him to the tribune and says, hey, this guy's got something to tell you. The tribune takes him by the hand and leads him away privately. He, he knows that this information is crucial, and he doesn't want anybody else to hear about it. So he does this privately. He says, what have you, what's going on? And what Luke does is Luke recounts that whole story that he just told us again. I think it's important that he, he wants us to see this is the plot. Because he could have just said, like he did with Paul, he could have just said the young man told him. But instead, he repeats it. He spills ink, explaining once again what the plot is. He wants this cemented in our brains. There is a serious plot against Paul. And so the tribune dismissed the young man and said, don't tell anybody. Don't let anybody know I know. So that happens first thing in the morning. This is probably by the afternoon. So then what is the response? Um, what actually happens is the, centur the, uh, the tribune calls the centurion, and he tells him to get ready an army, essentially. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearsmen. 
almost 500 people to escort Paul, to protect Paul from 40, more than 40 um, um, Jews who are going to attack him. So he's, he is serious about taking care of him. Do you see the elevated status that a Roman citizen has? You get 500 people escorting you to the airport. I mean, it's, it's a big detachment that's going to escort him. Um, we're going to provide. We're going to make sure that he doesn't get harmed. So, what's going on is is the the troops will get as far as Antipatris. Would you throw the um, the map up real quick? So you can see Antipatris is almost halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. It's about um, sixty miles to Caesarea, and I think it's like twenty seven to where they think Antipatris was. So they get there, and then the troops, half the troops, most of the troops, turn around and go back. Why would they do that? Well, because a couple of reasons. First of all, that distance from Jerusalem to Antipatris is in hilly territory. It's, it's difficult. It would be easy to be ambushed in that area. So you want as many troops as possible. You want to scare the bad guys away. The second thing is that's all Jewish territory. That's all predominantly Jewish territory. So if the Jews are going to have a plot against Paul, it's going to happen there. So they get to Antipatris. After that, the, the ground levels out. It'd be really easy to see anybody sneaking up on you for quite a ways. And that's more predominantly Gentile than it is Jew. So it kind of makes sense that some of the troops would turn back at that point. It's not like they chickened out. So they head back. And one of the things that they have to bring with them is a letter from the Tribune. And we finally learn his name. We get his name. His name is Claudius Lysias. What, what Luke says is he wrote a letter to this effect. And so he's not necessarily exactly quoting, like he got a copy of the letter and wrote it down, but he had information about what the letter said. And he said, this is basically what Claudius is saying. It's, it's a letter to this effect, something along these lines. And so Claudius tells Felix, the governor, the story. But you notice what's missing from that story? Oh yeah, right in the middle, I stretched him out and was gonna beat a Roman citizen. I've, we're gonna just leave that little detail out. That's, that's not really germane to the story. Here's the important part. Um, I'm the hero because I determined that he was a Roman citizen and I rescued him and now he's in your care. Um, a little bit of a stretch of the truth. Have you ever read business letters or after action reports or something? That's kind of how people are. It's, it's nothing horrible going on here. But this letter will introduce Paul to Felix and let Felix know why he's there. It establishes that Paul is a Roman citizen. Therefore, he is um, to be extended protection of the Roman government. He sent to Felix because Felix is the governor of Judea. He's over that whole area, and he would be the legal authority that they would go to because he would be the one to tell the Jews to knock it off. Um, and so he's sent there, and what uh, Claudius tells us in the letter, but we didn't see in the book of Acts, is he's also going to turn around and order his accusers, you go to Caesarea and deal with it there. So on the map, did you see uh, uh, Cilicia is way up at the top. That's where Paul is from. That's outside of Felix's jurisdiction. But Felix agrees to hear the case anyway. He says, yeah, I'll, I'll take this case because it would be really hard to send Paul the way, all the way up there. It would be hard for the Jews to get up there and to settle it in that region. And the Jews are under his jurisdiction. So he doesn't have to take this case, but he does. And what we'll see in the next couple of parts is the providence of God in letting that happen that way, that Felix would take it. So who is this Felix character? He's well documented in history. We know a lot about him. 
He was indeed the, um, the governor of Judea at this time. He, he took over about 52 or so and was taken out about 60. So he was in the, in the right time period for this to happen. Um, Felix was actually a former slave in the Roman Empire. But the emperor, King Claudius, or uh, Caesar Claudius, liked him and his brother, and so he freed them. And so they were freed slaves, and then Claudius was promoted to this governor. Um, Claudius is not a good guy. He's known for corruption and cruelty. Uh, the corruption part will come up in the future. We'll see it in a little bit. He's known for corruption and cruelty. He married Drusilla, who we'll meet later as well. Drusilla was Herod Agrippa I's daughter. So Felix is married into power, too. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that Felix had the power of the king but the mind of a slave. Um, and that pictures, he wasn't a particularly good governor. He just wasn't a really effective governor. As a matter of fact, the reason he got removed in 60 AD is because that's about the time the Jewish uprising started. And so since he wasn't able to keep the Jews under control, he was taken out and somebody else was put in. So this is Felix. We just get a touch, just a taste of who he is. We'll meet him more in the, um, in the future. But um, what he does is he does agree to hear the case, and so he puts Paul in uh, Herod's praetorium. Um, that would have been Herod I's praetorium, the, the building that he built. And so Paul, again, is not really under arrest, but protective custody, kind of, as it were. We're going to hang on to you until we figure out what's going on. There's a threat against your life. You may be the problem. You may need to be executed. They may need to be executed. Somebody's got to get executed. We're Romans, for heaven's sake. That's what we do. So something's going to happen here, but we'll just hang on until we hear the case, because if we don't do this well, we're in big trouble. So that's basically the story in a nutshell. Let me pray. Amen. What do you do with that? That's, that's interesting facts, but, but what do we do? What are we supposed to do with that? Luke could have said, um, when the tribune discovered that a plot was uh, planned against Paul's life, he sent him to Caesarea the next day, period. And then we get to Caesarea and then we hear the plot. So when he unpacks it like this, when he does this and he gives us this much detail, when he repeats the plot twice, when he calls the plot a, a plot, it is, um, it is a conspiracy, it, it's, it's an ambush, these kind of things, when he uses those words to describe it, I think Luke is trying to draw our attention to something very significant in this story. He had a purpose in writing it. He had something to tell us about this. And so what's the, what's the something? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, I think the hint to what we're supposed to do comes at the very beginning of the reading, where it says, and the next day. So as soon as the sun rises, well, what does the next day think, make you think of? The previous night, right? The way that the last section ended was the following night, after Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify to the facts in Rome. The next day, a plot was hatched against him. I think what Luke is trying to do is he's, he's telling us, he's giving us a clue, keep these two things together. Because what is really important, Why, when Jesus shows up, that's probably the most important thing, right? That's probably significant when Jesus shows up. Paul has faced all kinds of trials and tribulations. Why is Jesus showing up at this point and saying, you're going to Rome? Because do you remember the rest of the book of Acts, what the, the trip to Rome looks like? 
arrest, trial, there is a sailing on the sea, there is a violent storm that threatens to, to destroy the ship, to kill all the people. The soldiers think they're going to kill the, the, uh, um, the prisoners so they don't get away. They finally make it to shore. They land. They build a fire. Paul gets bit by a poisonous snake, and everybody looks at him going, is he going to puff up and die? They're all waiting for it. But where does the story end? The book of Acts ends with Paul sitting in Rome waiting to see the, the, um, the emperor. He's waiting for his trial. He needed to hear... Jesus tell him, you will be in Rome, so that he wouldn't lose hope, so that he wouldn't lose faith. For us, what we do when we look at this, is anybody going to go to Rome? Can I go with you, if you do? Nobody here is in danger of being shipped off to Rome, being imprisoned and thrown in there. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think, for me anyway, this raised a really important question. Jesus looked at Paul and said, you're going to Rome, and the very next day made it happen, right? He is now on the road. If there's that much urgency, why is it when he gets to Caesarea, does he spend at least two years there? Why was it the very next morning he started a moving and then he spends two years? And if he gets to Caesarea and two years later ships out, why would God send him into the belly of a storm that would destroy the ship and threaten to kill him? Why didn't he just say, you're going to Jerusalem, or you're going to Rome, here's an airline ticket, go down to Tel Aviv, hop on a flight, and you'll be there, no trouble. He could have just shipped him straight there. It raises the question of why God does stuff. Why does God do these things? And what really is, is something is when you think about why did Paul leave Jerusalem in such a hurry? Why did he get shipped out at 9 o'clock at night? It's danger to dangerous to travel. They didn't have street lights back then. Why would he ship him out at 9 o'clock that very night? because of a plot against him. And do you remember how I described that plot? These men had committed to commit murder. Murder is not just a violation of the Mosaic law under Moses, which they said they upheld and they were so pure under and everything. It's inherently wrong. It goes all the way back to the, the, God, or the covenant God made with Noah. Because when God made a covenant with Noah, he said, if anybody kills man who's made in my image, they must be killed. Even if an animal does it, that has to happen. So murder is, is not just a violation of the law of Moses. It is a violation of God's eternal moral law. And these guys are going to do it. So if Jesus is, is so in control, he can tell Paul, you're going to Rome. Why would he use the instrumentality of these evil men and their evil plot to do it? it, it for me, this thing raises the question of the problem of evil. If God is all good... If God is all-powerful, why is there evil in the world at all? Does God control evil? Is he over evil? Is he guilty of evil? So it raises three questions that I'd like to spend some time unpacking here. Is God, is God sovereign? That is, can he control? Is he in charge of? Is he sovereign over human decisions? The second one, if God is sovereign, is he responsible for human evil? If God's sovereign over human decisions, is he then responsible for human evil? And then the third one, if God is sovereign, why does he allow evil to begin with? I think that's the, the three questions that rose from that, that whole issue of how God got Paul out of Jerusalem. It was based on the evil of people. So is God sovereign over human decisions? This is the question of free will. Well, the Bible, this is how the Bible pictures it. Lamentations 3.37 who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? 
Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord hasn't decreed it? No one. Proverbs 16.9, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Ecclesiastes 7.14, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Is God sovereign over human decisions? According to what the Bible pictures, he is sovereign. Man plans his path, but it's God who, who, um, who directs it, who, who determines whether it will happen or not. Consider it this way. If, if there was a God who had created the universe and then could be overcome by his creatures, so God establishes a world. He says, this is my world that I've made, and now my creatures can overrule my intentions and my purposes. He wouldn't be really a god so much. He would be more like Dr. Frankenstein, who gets overpowered and killed by his creation. That's not a god. That's a man. So God does have sovereign rule over evil decisions. He, he, we can establish that. As a matter of fact, the clearest, best place to see that is in the story of Joseph, when he's sold to Egypt as a slave, and he winds up rising to the position of uh, the second in charge of all of Egypt, and his brothers come not knowing it's him, and he reveals himself to his brothers. He says, you guys sold me to, to, into slavery. You sold me to the Ishmaelites. You put me in Egypt as a slave. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So is God sovereign over human evil, over humans' evil intentions? Gosh, I hope so. Can you imagine if he wasn't? If human evil intentions just ran their course and did whatever they want, this, this would be hell on earth. As a matter of fact, I think where it got close to being that way was right before the flood. Remember when God flooded the earth, he looked and he said, these people are so ugly, they're so violent, they're killing each other. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth and start over again with these eight people. After that, now God begins to restrain and direct evil in a different way, but that's pretty huge. So if God is sovereign over human decisions and he can control and direct how people will behave, is he responsible for their evil? Is he responsible for what evil men create? Uh, for example, if you knew somebody was going to do something bad, if you knew somebody was going to go rob a bank, and you want, well, I know they're going to do it, and I've seen the guns and the, the getaway car and watched the plans and everything, but I'm not going to touch it. I'm not getting involved. Would you be in any way morally responsible for that happening if you could have prevented it? So that's the question. Is, is If God is sovereign over people's decisions, over their sin, does that make him guilty of it? Because he doesn't stop it every single time. Well, if God knew it's going to occur, concur, right? He knew that, that these men were going to try to kill Paul. Why not have him give them a dream in the middle of the night that scares the daylights out of them? Why not appear to them and say, go away? Um, Balaam, the false prophet, his donkey talked to him to get him to stop doing bad things, right? God has intervened. He has interfered with the evil that men intend to do. Why didn't he do it here? Why did he instead let them go so that they would chase Paul out of Jerusalem? Well, we could presume that he had a reason for doing it. 
So when Paul's nephew knew about the plot, he heard about the plot, he, he recognized these are bad dudes, they're the kind of people that would do that. Would he, what would have happened if he went, you know what, these guys are scary, these assassin guys, they're pretty scary, and those, those Romans, man, I, I'm terrified of those Roman soldiers, I'm not going anywhere near this. I'll just go pray for Paul. Hopefully he'll make it out okay. Didn't he have a responsibility to go tell Paul, to, to explain to him what was going on? Well, how do you determine then when somebody's responsible for something and when somebody's not, or when there might be a reason for doing it? And so one of the things I think of is I, I refer to this idea called range of responsibility, a, a nice term I made up, but there's ranges of responsibility. So let me give you an illustration, and then I'll demonstrate what that is. It's a Star Trek illustration, don't laugh. One of the best Star Trek episodes ever is City on the Edge of Forever. And in that story, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy wind up in 1930s Earth, dislodged from time. Kirk, of course, falls in love with a woman named Edith Keeler because Kirk falls in love with everybody. But he falls in love with this woman. And by the way, the way she is portrayed in this, she runs a mission in 1930s to feed people. She meets somebody on the street, she brings them in, she cares for them. Edith Keeler in this story is pictured as this wonderful saint. And so, of course, Kirk falls in love with her. We kind of do, too. But through circumstances, they find out that if Edith Keeler doesn't die at a certain time, she was, she was supposed to have died by a car accident. If she doesn't die, she will go on to lead a big movement of pacifism in the United States, which will cause the United States to delay entry into World War II, which will allow the Nazis to develop the bomb, deploy it on V-2 rockets, and take over the world. Therefore, their future is gone. So Kirk is looking at it, looking at the woman he loves, and trying to decide, do I save her or do I let her die? And so in the most gut-wrenching moment of the entire episode, she's walking across the street, and you hear car, a car engine coming and, and tires squealing, and McCoy runs to, to intercept. He can see she's going to be hit by a truck, and Kirk grabs him and stops him. And you see this shot of Kirk's face, he's about to cry because the woman he loves just got hit by a truck. So that's the story. She is now dead. She died, and, and you know, this is 1960s television, so there's no blood, you know, the bloodless deaths. You get run over by a truck and you just lay there and look like, you know. In reality, that would have hurt. It would be broken bones. It would be damaged internal organs. It would be internal bleeding. It would be concussion as you're bleeding out and dying. It would have been gross. She got hit by this big 1930s truck. They were made out of iron back then, I think. They were heavy, and this thing was coming around the corner. So she died, and she didn't just die, you know, a pleasant, smiling, fall asleep dead. She got crushed. She was in bad shape. So here's the question. Was Kirk responsible for evil in stopping McCoy from saving her? If you look at that first ring of responsibility, if you look at the first range of responsibility, McCoy could have saved her. He could have pushed her out of the way. And Kirk stopped him. He grabbed him. He, he allowed a woman to die by preventing somebody from saving her. If it was anybody but Edith Keeler in this story, we would go, Kirk is a monster. Why on earth would he do something so horrible? As a matter of fact, that's McCoy's response to him. Do you know what you just did? You just caused this woman to die, this woman you love. You just caused her to get hit by a truck. If we stop there, if we stop at that first range of responsibility, we go, Kirk is evil. He is just a monster. 
He allowed a woman to die that he could have saved. How horrible is that? But what the episode is begging us to do is look at the next range of responsibility. There is a global range of responsibility. Had Keeler lived, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, would have died. Who knows how the Nazis would have deployed the bomb? They probably almost certainly would have bombed uh, London with a nuclear weapon. Can you imagine a world run by Nazis? They exterminated the Jews, they exterminated blacks, they exterminated homosexuals, who's next? It would have been horrible. Thousands, millions possibly would have died under Nazi rule. So now you ask the question, Kirk took a step to ensure that the Nazi um, um, regime would fall at the appropriate time. Was he evil in doing that? No, it's, it's somewhat heroic that he would sacrifice his love, his devotion to this one woman for the greater good of multiple people. That's that next range of responsibility. What's the final range of responsibility? I don't know how to describe it, so I just say historical. In the Star Trek universe, whether you agree with it or not, humanity has freed itself from all sorts of evils, and it is darn near a utopia. Nobody has any want, nobody has any need, there's no more money. People just get together and, and, and hang out and go explore the stars in, in groovy kind of ways. They just It's wonderful. Kirk lives in that reality. That's his reality. He says, humanity can achieve utopia, but not if the Nazis take over. Nazism has to end. So when I look at Edith Keeler, I think, for the greater good of the ultimate purpose in humanity, this, this utopia we're capable of, this woman has to die, and I love her. So now, does Kirk look like such an, an, a villain, or is he the hero that we know him to be? It depends on the range of responsibility, uh, how far are you willing to look. So is God sovereign over human decisions? Yes, he is. That's the picture the Bible pick, paints for us. He is sovereign. Does that make him responsible and culpable for the evil that they perform? Only if he has no greater purpose in what happens, in, in allowing things to happen. As I said, he stopped Balaam from doing certain things. He has intervened before. He doesn't intervene every single time. So that would seem to make me think he has a purpose. He has a reason for doing it. So is God's, if God is sovereign... Why does he allow evil? Now, notice the word I, I use there is allow, not cause, but allow. Why does God allow evil to exist? Well, first of all, we have to understand what God's intention in creation is. What is his intention in the world? God is good, and his intention is to bring about good. That's why he, he does what he does. He wants to bring about good. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good that comes into the world is God's positive desire. I want this good to happen in this world. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's intention, his work in the world is to bring about good why is there evil? Well, what is evil? Evil, in the best definition I could come up with, is evil is destroying, corrupting, or preventing the good that God intends. So God has this intention. I want to bring good into the world, and evil opposes that. Evil says, I want to prevent, I want to prevent it. If I can't prevent it, I'll pervert it. I'll turn it upside down. 
That's evil. Why would God allow that to happen? Well, he doesn't cause the evil. Rather, he constrains its actions. He says, you can go this far, but no farther. Job, everybody immediately jumped to Job, right? Satan goes to, to uh, God and says, yeah, Job, yeah, he's a good guy, but he's only good because you're nice to him. Let me take some stuff from him and he'll, he'll curse you. And God's response is not, well, you know, free reign, go get him. He says, you can do this, period. Satan has no rebuttal, there's no argument. God has constrained exactly how far Satan can go. This is your parameters, period, now go do it. Do what you're going to do. So God doesn't cause the evil, but he does constrain it. For example, we've already read this, Acts 14, right? Paul's sermon at the Mars Hill, he says, In past generations, he, that is God, allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. He allowed the nations. He didn't cause the nations. He didn't say, Babylon, you're going to worship Moloch, and it's going to look like this. And Egypt, you're going to worship Ra, and it's going to go like this. He allowed the nations to head in those evil directions, in those improper directions. When Egypt was in captivity in, uh, or when uh, Israel was in captivity in Egypt, right? When we finish the book of Acts, we're going to go do uh, Exodus. So we'll hear the story. When, when they're in captivity and God says, now is the time for your, my people to be released, he sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says, you go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And what the scripture tells us is he hardened Pharaoh's heart. So does that mean he put into Pharaoh's heart, don't you dare let those people go. I know you want to, but I'm telling you, you can't. It was already in Pharaoh's heart. I'm not letting those people go. Are you kidding? Free slave labor? Look at the, look at the monuments they're building. There's, this is a good deal. I'm not letting them go. All God did was say, you're resolved in that. You're, you're now so stubborn that I'm going to extract my glory over you because you're so stubborn. He didn't put it in his heart. He didn't change his heart. He kept him heading in that same direction. In Acts, remember Ananias and Sapphira? They sold some property. They brought it to the church and went, yeah, this is how much we sold it for. Look at how generous we are. Peter looks at him and says, why has Satan put it into your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit didn't put it in their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Satan put it in their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then finally, Luke, the end of Luke 22, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Satan entered into Judas. It wasn't like God dragged Judas Iscariot off to the temple and, and made him mouth the words, hey, I'll do it for 30 pieces of silver. Satan entered him and let him off. So why would God allow these kind of things to happen? Why would he permit these kind of things to go on? And it is a permission. It's not an, an act of engagement. Here's my proposal. Here's my thought. God permits evil to do only so much and that in only certain ways because he is directing it to accomplish its own destruction. God allows evil to only do so much and only in certain ways because he is directing evil to bring about its own destruction. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit. St. Augustine charted the course of history in four very succinct statements. I think they're very clever. Before the fall, man was able to sin. We know that because he did. So before the fall, man was innocent but able to sin. After the fall, man is no longer able to not sin. 
Everything he does in his heart is bent inwards. The fall has corrupted humanity now so that it's impossible for them to not sin. But then Jesus comes and he saves us. He gives us a new heart. And so now after, uh, after our salvation, we're able to not sin. We wrestle with that. We, we go back and forth. We struggle with that. That's, that's Romans chapter 7. Why do I do the thing I don't want to do? I'm able to not do it and I struggle with it. So we're now able to not sin. We've, given, we've been set free from the bonds of sin and we can resist it. But in the resurrection, right, when Jesus comes back in the new heavens and the new earth, in the resurrection, now we're not able to sin. Sin has been done away with. So he charts the course of history through these four states. Able to sin, not able to not sin, able to not sin, and then unable to sin. That's, that's the course. So why would God allow us to go through those four stages? Why would he structure not just Israel, but all of human history to lead us through these four stages? Well, here's my theory. In the Garden of Eden, God had put man and woman, right? When he created the world, he, over the six days, he'd say, this is good, this is good, this is good. When he created Adam, he said, it's not good that Adam be alone. He needs a wife. He created Eve and he said, ah, now, there. Everything is perfect? No, it was very good. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't complete. Perfection means without lack, without deficiency, lacking nothing, all its fullness. So in the garden, we tend to think that in the garden, the world was perfect, everything was perfect. It wasn't. Because of Augustine's first statement, man was able to sin. So God creates a garden, and that word garden in the Garden of Eden, it was used to describe a king's garden. And a king's garden in those days had high walls, and it was lush and beautiful, but it was designed to keep people out. This is the king's garden. You don't walk in here. So God has created in this very good creation this beautiful garden, and he puts man and woman in it. That, that's the state that they're in. Now, why does he put, and I was asked this question recently, why does he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of it? Why not just leave that out? Shouldn't that be outside the wall? They can't even touch it. We're going to keep them from knowing it. He puts it there, and Adam and Eve look at it, and they decide that that's better than God. Do you see what I mean by capable of sin, able to sin? They were innocent, but they weren't perfect yet because sin was still a potentiality. So what God does is he allows them this moment, right? He is not visibly present in the garden. He allows a snake in the garden. Why a snake? Snake's introduced as the most crafty of all the animals. And then he allows Satan to enter that snake. Why would he do that? Why couldn't he just keep all of that out? I think the picture that we get from the rest of human history in the Bible is God is, is drawing Satan or sin out. He says, the potential exists in my universe as I've created. I want to draw it out so that I can destroy it. I think the serpent is a really good picture. Can you imagine trying to get a snake out of a hole if it's still in the hole and you're trying to kill it in there? You just can't reach it. It's, it's too hidden. But if you can do something to entice that snake all the way out, whap, you can chop its head off and destroy it, and it's gone. So this is why I believe God left that tree in that garden, was to draw sin out. As a matter of fact, we're told that the law was given so that sin would become more sinful. The law was given to make sin that big so you could see it. And so this is what God is doing in the world. This is why God would allow sin. Remember Kirk, 
let his girlfriend die so that he could save the future, so that he could bring about the utopia. He allowed this one evil to take place so that he could bring the ultimate good in the Star Trek universe. It's kind of lame in our universe, but in the Star Trek universe, so he could bring this ultimate good. So if God lets sin exist, if he lets these 40 men decide that they're going to commit murder, if he lets the, the, the high priests and the elders decide that they're going to commit perjury, he might have a bigger purpose for it. He might have a good intention, something in the end that's going to come out of it that's going to be much more glorious. So the, the world starts very good, but how does it end? It doesn't end in a garden with two people. That's very good. It's not perfect. Where it ends is in a big, huge, beautiful, glorious city with countless people set free from sin and hell. As a matter of fact, Revelation 19 says, the devil who had deceived them, the people of the world, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 4, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So do you get the picture at the end? Spoiler alert, this is the end of the story, you guys. Sin and death, Satan, are all thrown into a lake of fire. They are removed from this beautiful creation. God has now teased out sin. He's pulled it out of that hole, and he takes the whole thing and chucks it into a lake of fire. Sin is excluded, and what remains then is the perfect, beautiful creation that God had intended. Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives us its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring it into it, the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does any any, or who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. This perfected, completed state, nothing unclean is allowed in. It has been removed from creation. The creation is restored. So Revelation twenty two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life, that they may enter into the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. How do you get into God's perfect? How do you wind up there? Everything else is excluded. Everything else is kept out. So it accomplished this ultimate good, this perfect where there is no sin or death or hell or tears. To get there, God has been working carefully, methodically throughout history to tease sin all the way out of its hole so that it can be removed, so that his purpose in, in creation can be brought to fullness. And so where we see this most clearly is in the death of his own son. This is where you see him bringing sin out and executing it. Sin, demonic sin and human sin, brought about its own destruction by killing Jesus. So that's what I said originally. Remember, that why does God allow sin? So that it can destroy itself, so that it can bring itself to destruction. You see that in the crucifixion of Jesus. Human sin, demonic sin, thought they had him. We killed him. What more can we do? He's dead. But in that, it wound up destroying sin and death and hell. That's the picture we saw at the end. 
So, and this is from Jesus' own words, Mark 10. He says, for, a, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life, he was unjustly executed. He was wrongly killed. Pilate said, I find no fault in the man. I'm just going to let him go. And yet turned around and crucified him. He admitted that he was executing an innocent man. So here it is. The perfect man, the innocent man is killed. Why? That God might have a bigger purpose, that I might ransom many. So God could have a bigger purpose in allowing these kind of things. So why do we have this sin, human sin-filled plot and the natural evil of life-threatening storm and a snake bite against Paul at this point? It's really easy at first glance to go, well, just get him out of, out of Jerusalem. But that doesn't answer the rest of his journey, which is filled with, with difficulty. So why did God allow these men to plot against him? Because that was how he was going to initiate the move to Jerusalem. What about the rest of it? I don't know. I just, I don't know why Paul wound up in a storm. I don't know why a snake had to be in all places right there by the fire and jump out and bite Paul's hand when he's going for more wood. I don't know. But based on what we've seen so far, couldn't we say maybe God has a bigger purpose in this? Maybe God has some good that he's going to bring about by allowing this, this terrible evil to happen so far. That Paul would be in chains. Wasn't it better when Paul was freed and he was out preaching the gospel and bringing many people to Christ? Wasn't that perfect? Wasn't that better? Why wouldn't we stick with that? Why put him in chains now? It appears that God had a bigger purpose for Paul, a bigger reason for doing this. So he would allow space for this evil to take place so that he accomplished these great things. So we don't know exactly, but we do know that God is allowing sin to destroy sin. And he's working to remove it like a skilled surgeon is cutting out a tumor. Not just, well, hack it open, yank it out, sew it back up, let's hope it's done. He's working like a skilled surgeon going in and very carefully preserving what needs to be preserved and removing what's going to be removed. So it's not like God has done anything, or it's not like God is not doing anything about evil. When, when people object to the problem of evil, what they're actually saying is, he's not doing it on my timetable. He's not doing it as fast as I would like him to do. And denying the point that maybe he's got some purpose in this thing. Maybe he's going to do something in that that's going to be better in the end. And I can't see it. So since I can't see it, he must be wrong. Well, we need to have a little bit of humility here and say, you know, I don't have all the facts. I don't know everything there is to know. What's been revealed to me in the scriptures is for me and for my children. And that's what I'm going to hang on to. And the hidden things, I'm just not going to get. So why does God allow evil that looks like this in this world at this time? I haven't a clue. But I can rest in the fact that my future is secure. I've gotten a, pink, a peek at it at the end. The sin that troubles me now is done. The death that plagues us is done. Satan who, who opposes us and tempts us and troubles us is done. The road is rocky and painful. The outcome is secure and the future is glorious. That's where we're going with this. So Jesus visited Paul on that last night to assure him Paul, you're going to see some evil. You're going to see some horrible things. Felix is not by any stretch a nice guy. You're going to face him. 
Caesar is even worse. You're going to face him. He visited him. He showed up visibly. He came and stood by him. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't an apparition. It wasn't a trance. It wasn't a dream. Jesus came and stood next to him and said, Paul, this is what's happening. So that Paul could have assurance on that road. So let me ask you, life hard? Is it difficult? Have you got a peek at what's going on at the end? Can you look at at the book of Revelation and say, I don't understand it all, and I know it's really rough before we get there, but in the end, sin and death and hell, my, my opponents are done away with. I won't like the trip. I'm sure that Paul was not, you know, on the deck of the ship as the back end of it's breaking up and the waves are crashing in, yelling and singing and going, this is so cool, this is great, isn't this wonderful? He was probably terrified because he was getting chucked into the ocean and have to swim to shore. But at the same time, he could have this rock-solid hope and go, I'm going to make it because Jesus told me I'm going to Rome. So this can't be the end of my trip. That, that's the idea is, yes, this is terrible. This, this accident is horrible. This cancer is wrong. It shouldn't be here. This asthma is going to kill me, but it's not going to be permanent. And that's the picture that, that Luke is painting. He doesn't tell us exactly in this text all that he said there is, did he? He just painted the picture. He said, Jesus is sovereign, evil happens. And then he leaves it. So how do I justify pulling that out of the text? Um, a little self-defense um, here. There's a thing called the analogy of faith. And that means the Bible from beginning to end has one author, even though it's written by many people, and that's God. God has one purpose. So when we're introduced to something like the question of evil here, we can freely go to the rest of the Bible and ask that question because God intends us to find it. And he doesn't give us one succinct, simple answer, does he? He takes all of human history to answer that question. He takes all of scripture to answer that question. So that's why I feel justified in looking at this, raising the question and saying, okay, Lord, what does your word tell us about this? Remember, the book of Acts is about disciples making disciples. That's us. So if we're disciples, we're going to have to go figure out what he means when he says these things. What is the Bible telling us here? So that's what we've seen. Now we're on the road. Now we can head, head down the road with the assurance that none of this is beyond Jesus' control. None of it's outside God's sovereignty. That everything that happens, though it be evil, is, is going the direction God intends it to go. Does that help you at all? It, 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 I swear there are times when that is as thin as, as a hair in your life and you're just barely hanging on. And then there's times when it's written large, but it remains true no matter what. And so let's pray and ask God to make that a reality for us. Lord, would you convince us of this reality? Lord, would you convince us over and over again through the testimony of the Old Testament, through the testimony of the New Testament, through personal experience on our own, through the testimony of the saints that we live and, and, um, and worship with? Um, Lord, would you convince us that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you hate sin, that you are working steadily, carefully, and methodically to destroy it? And so, Lord, as, as you draw it out in this world, as it continues to come to its fullness, as you said about the people in Canaan, when the sin of the Amorites has reached its fullness, there is a limit, there is a point. Lord, as we're working towards that end, would you give us patience, peace, hope, faith, trust? And Lord, would you show us and remind us of the glory that we 
that awaits us, the glory that we just get a taste of now in Jesus Christ and an eternity to enjoy you forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.